Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. We will not be podcasting tomorrow as Noah Rothman is going on a well-deserved vacation to uh, to a, um, a place that is under lockdown. <laughs> Just say undisclosed tropical location. Undisclosed tropical <laughs> location where people have been uh, uh, having too much fun. Uh, and uh, I will be driving to Chicago to be with um, uh, my uh, family for uh, the Passover holiday. So since the big news tomorrow will be that President Biden will have his first press conference, um, I thought we might structure the podcast today uh, around the question of um, how far will the White House press corps go to making it as easy as possible for Biden to get through this uh, and uh, with his uh, reputation uh, enhanced and... uh, and with uh, the goal of the furtherance of the uh, leftist welfare state that he is creating uh, 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 advanced, Uh, since that, of course, is in the world of uh, journalism as moral clarity, that's where we are now, which is, of course, we need our uh, reporters and and the press to um, can't just sit on the sidelines and be objective. They actually have to contribute to society in a way. And in this moment, that, of course, means gun control uh, for, you know, continuing spending infrastructure, uh, however you want to, want to slice it. So I thought we would go to what the, fir- the first question Anybody want to guess at what the first question will be? I will tell you. If you don't get it right, I will. I will. Uh, I will buzzer you and tell you what it is. What will the first question be? Well, now the stakes are too high. I don't Come want on. to answer. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. What's the first question going to be? Abe, first question. It's going to. I don't know exactly, but it's going to have to do with like um, Republican obstructionism. Eh, not the first question. Is it going to be about COVID and about how he's like, absolutely, no? Okay. I think Abe's right. I think it's going to be about the filibuster. Thank you. (laughs) Boulder. It will be about guns. The first question will be about guns. And it will be about, uh, it will be a journey back into the the mystical chords of memory, taking us back to the assault weapons ban. Because here we are, it's 2021, and we're going to have the same conversation we had in 1994, and then every single time something happens. And what will not be asked as a follow-up to the Boulder shooting question? What will not be asked? What can you be absolutely sure will not be asked? Noah, this is this is right in your wheelhouse. I just don't know why you think we can read your mind. Just tell what? us what you're thinking. No, I no. This is the issue you talked about. This is the issue you talked about on the group chat. What won't the Washington press corps say? Oh, oh, right, right. Well, this is something I'll be delving into for the blog. What's the answer? Um, Self-radicalized Islamic terrorism. That's me applauding. I don't know if you can tell. That is exactly the right answer. What will not be asked is what we are to make of the fact that the shooter. 
uh, is a, a a Muslim not born in the United States who uh, and and what his possible motivations might be outside of just you know the general thirst. A- Abe, Abe has a thing, but then I want to ruminate on this. Well, I just have a, a point about the dynamic of that of the press conference as opposed to a one on one interview. Um, I think there's a p- possibility that. All right, we know in the one-on-one interviews with Biden, the uh, the journalist's goal is to further the uh, the, the Biden um, agenda, right? Is to further the the whatever the, the liberal plan is. There's a slightly different dynamic in these press conferences because it's 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 among other things a competition among the um, the uh, uh, journalists who are there. So there is a little bit more incentive to actually get in some uh, substantive questions. So I don't. So it might be uh, slightly um, less obsequious to the president than the one-on-one interviews. That was my. Before point. Noah says what he needs to uh, say, I just want to add. I totally agree with that. Um, but I think that the the our our bar for less obsequious is going to be set in when they frame questions such as some people have compared your legacy already to <laughs> FDR and Johnson's Great Society. What do you think about that, Mr. President? So like that's going to be the non obsequious question. <laughs> Noah, uh, yeah, sure. So um, I have thoughts on all all these things, and all my thoughts are all jumbled up but um okay so pick one briefly for the self-radicalized islamic terror which is what i'm going to be writing about today for the blog so go to the blog readers later and read my thoughts in um more uh a more well put together fashion but we this guy fits a psychological profile a um and it's a profile that we were very uh, able to understand and quickly and uh with some uh, logic not too long ago, and we've utterly lost the vocabulary to talk about this sort of thing. We all, we, all we can talk about now are guns and white supremacy. Exogenous conditions contribute to radicalization sometimes, as was the case with the Pensacola shooter. Government uh, investigators determined that the toxic environment in which he was in during uh, BASIC was a contributing factor. Sometimes there are no exogenous conditions that contribute to that psychological profile, as was the case in 2017 with the guy who... Uh, took a SUV and ran it down a sidewalk um, by the Hudson River and uh, hurt and killed a lot of people in the process. And we couldn't identify anything that was uh, a a motivating factor that led to his self-radicalization. But self-radicalization was the continuous um, motivating condition that led these people to their acts of violence. And we can't talk about that anymore. We just don't have the language. We've lost it. I don't know when that happened, has something to do with Donald Trump because in the process it does because in the process of his presidency we forgot all about what homegrown terror looks like and it's not always white. Well, okay, so uh, <clears throat> in 2015 there were two major instances <clears throat> of Islamist terror that were excused away as not being Islamist terror. If you remember, there was the San Bernardino shooting and the Pulse shooting in Orlando. And in both cases, the Obama administration and the Democrats refused, did everything they could, and the press did everything they could to say this: these were not instances of Islamic radical terror. Uh, the Pulse shooting was, uh, was homophobia, uh, self-hating homophobia. Uh, Amer- American homophobia, above American all. American homophobia, 
Uh, and of course, we then discovered that Omar Mateen, the shooter, you know, was an Islamist uh, radical, and and that uh, he was not somebody who, you know, he was shooting up a club for whatever reason. Anyway, uh, two things. One of which is there haven't been these incidents during. You the forgot trial. about the second episode, which I believe was San Bernardino. San Bernardino, right? Well, that, that was a compli- That was the shooting up of a of a Christmas party, right? An office Christmas party. Um, again, by a, an Islamist. So what, and of course, Trump made, hey, that was where the, we have to shut down all travel from, that's where the Muslim travel ban originated. If you remember, that was, we got to shut everything down until we can find out what the hell is going on. And of course, this was deemed awful and terrible by the cognizanti and the chattering class, and then created the conditions under which support for Trump remained a kind of um, under-the-radar thing where he was saying things that resonated with a lot of people, including people who didn't want to admit that they were as disturbed by some of this as they were and therefore might nominally say they didn't like this kind of talk but would vote for him anyway. So then the Trump administration begins. uh, The Muslim ban is imposed. It's a it's a disaster. Uh, It was badly drafted. There were protests at the airports and so on. And then Mirabile Dictu, there were almost no incidents, as far as I can think, of homegrown Islamic radicals or, 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 you know, immigrant Islamic radicals uh, creating horrible uh, murder scenes during the Trump presidency. The Trump presidency ends. We're now two months into the Biden presidency, and here is this moment, and the initial thought was, ah, well, it's another white guy with a gun shooting people up, and uh, it may well be that this is, and, you know, I think it's more likely than not that this is a disordered, you know, schizophrenic, doing a disordered schizophrenic thing, but the presumption was it was going to fit neatly into the new model, which is, yeah, there is no Islamic terrorism, it's all homegrown white supremacist radicalism, and the you know the FBI is now redirecting all of its energies to investigate and extirpate homegrown domestic white supremacist right. terrorism. And here we have what, and it just doesn't fit the category. So that so I think you're right. So I think part one of losing the vo- losing the vocabulary happened under Obama uh, when when we weren't allowed to recognize Islamist terrorism as Islamist terrorism. Part two happened under Trump, which is instead seeing everything as um, the work of white supremacists. I mean, the the amazing thing was, uh, so there were two shootings within the span of a week uh, in this country. Both were immediately and falsely picked up to advance distorted narratives about race and prejudice, right? Right. Uh, The Atlanta shooting was not about anti-Asian bigotry. That didn't stop anyone from going on a crusade about that. Um, and Boulder was not about uh, white supremacist ideology, and and but that that those became the animating um, ideas around both until Boulder was you know was that, that was sort of punctured. 
Well, and the, the ident- how identity politics has suppressed our ability to even discuss statistics about shootings has been astonishing to watch in the last week, right? So what you see on, certainly on social media by irresponsible tweeters, is people on Twitter is not something that, you know, it shouldn't be judged for the whole nation. But the common conversation among the chattering classes is that mass shootings are a white male thing. But if you start digging down into the numbers, first of all, the numbers don't, they, they eliminate gang shootings from those numbers because that, which basically throws out the whole mess of statistics, in my opinion, because a mass shooting, whether it's committed by a gang member against a rival gang or against, you know, a bunch of people in a supermarket by a crazed Islamist, these are the, these are still mass shootings. So we, the numbers have been getting cooked for a while to continue this narrative. And you saw it immediately spring up in the wake of, of uh, the shooting in Boulder. And that's actually harmful to any true discussion among Americans about gun control, about how what kind of risk they face in their daily lives um, from mass shooters. Um, instead, it all becomes people just arguing their same old you know, narrative, regardless of actual fact. Right. Well, I mean, look, in the end, the problem with the larger political points that are made about these incidents is that if you want to talk about numbers, there are 330 million people in this country and there are these incidents that flare up. And the idea that they're representative of anything is a terrible notion. Like they're not representative of anything. They might be representative of a deep truth about American culture that is hard to face, which is that we are, we are a violent people. And we are more violent people than many people are, even though we live in a world in which violence is declining and in which uh, violent violent crime is declining and all of that. Violence is writ somehow into the American consciousness, pop culture, who knows what, and that uh, people resort to using violence in a way that they often don't, at least publicly or in these large scale, that they do in other, in other you know, advanced democracies. And um, how you deal with that is a very complicated matter because you can't deal with it. Country is too big, changing the culture. You can't just, you know, swap out elements of a culture that is 240 years old. Well, well, that kind of humility is really prudent, except that the people we're talking about don't have the capacity for that kind of humility, never engage with it. We talk every single time something like this happens, and it's not in, it's not valueless. We do talk about root causes. We talk about the um, conditions that and and irresponsible rhetoric from politicians that might have led people to engage in these activities. The tree of uh, life, the synagogue shooting, um, that had everything to do with politics, and maybe it was overblown, but it wasn't imprudent to question ourselves and question those motives. And when white supremacist violence happens, we question our society and we question our politicians and our politics. That might be a desperate pursuit of agency on our part, but it's nevertheless not, it's not valueless. And only when something like this happens, do we, do we decline to engage in that kind of speculation and immediately lurch for a public policy issue like gun control, where we, again, which is just a, a spinning your wheels. We've been doing this for the last decade and a half now, having the very same conversations every single time this happens. And it exists only as a sort of group therapy. It's not a, a policy conversation whatsoever. But it is not imprudent to have those conversations. And to see this, this cast of people just sort of abandon it is very conspicuous. 
Well, to the gun gun control point, what's interesting about what I've seen pop up more and more after these shootings, of course, there are always the people who are like, this is because of guns, you know, but if you look at, again, to the statistics, look at how many there were, there were over 20 shootings just last weekend in Chicago, 20 people shot, not all killed, thank God, but one of them shot was, an, I think, an 11-year-old child, mass shootings. Chicago has extremely strict rules about gun control. The response is always, yeah, but they can just drive across the border and get illegal guns. The point is that the the, the true gun uh, ban people want to get rid of what the Second Amendment has long meant in this country. They want to get rid of all the guns and only have guns in the hands of the government, you know, federal control of guns at a level that I don't think most Americans would accept, even the ones who don't own guns. So that debate gets skewed as well. And it's but it's much easier to talk even about guns than it is about mental health issues. For example, this guy clearly, according to his family, the guy in Colorado clearly had some sort of paranoid delusion, some sort of really serious mental health issues. Again, much easier to say, well, if he couldn't get a gun, this never would have happened. Really, he could have grabbed a knife and started stabbing people. I mean, if, if the problem was mental illness or radicalization, those are harder policy, immediate policy responses to create, I think. So it's just easier to ban gut, to say, let's ban all guns. Well, but banning guns <clears throat> has been a desideratum of a certain type of urban politician, urban intellectual, urban type for my entire lifetime. And it got purchased because we had this uptick in these uh, mass shootings. And even Donald Trump, I mean, you remember in 2017, after the Mandalay Bay, which I think is still the worst mass shooting that we've ever had or something, you know, and that, of course, we have no idea. We, we have no idea what the motive was. That remains a really mysterious case. A 63-year-old yeah. man with no history of crime, mental illness, or anything going up to this hotel room and then raining down bullets on a, on, a, on, a, on a country and Western concert. And his motivations, his purposes his, what, are, are, are completely obscure to us and will always be, as far as we can tell, right? And Trump then said, I want to do something. And then, you know, I can't even remember what his trigger thing. There's some kind of trigger block. or I, I mean, uh, I'm not a gun user. Bump I don't, stock. Bump stocks, right. And then, and then basically as the days passed, it was sort of like the people who want gun control, this was entirely insufficient for them. And the people who oppose it said this is the camel's nose under the tent. And so it, it was satisfying to no one, supposedly, Although it might have been satisfying to the great American middle. We, we, we don't know. Um, uh, you know, I think the great American middle, uh, overwhelming majorities of people in polls support background checks, pauses in, you know, like a three-day pause before you can get your gun and stuff like that, uh, that then run up against this constitutional question that, unfortunately for gun controllers, um, is, uh, is very hard to overcome. Um, which is that the Second Amendment guarantees a right to keep and bear arms. And you can then claim that it's modified by the first clause in the Second Amendment and all that about a well, you know, a well-armed militia. But, uh, you know, it, the, the language is very, very unambiguous that you shall have a right to keep and bear arms. And, and you can't get beyond that without another constitutional amendment. So honest people like our friend Brett Stevens, who is a who is a gun controller, says the only thing to do here 
is to pass a constitutional amendment banning guns or, you know, whatever, however well, mo- you want. Most gun owners in this country are responsible gun owners. Like if you grew, I grew up around guns. I mean, if you, if you grow up with a, with an understanding of the safety and the need to keep your, you keep your guns locked when you're not, when they're not in use, you, you train so that you know how to use them. I mean, this is for, for most American gun owners, they are responsible in the use of their firearms. It's only the irresponsible mass shooters that we hear about. So that whole story of responsible gun ownership goes untold for the but, I mean, and also Colorado has red flag laws and Colorado has checks on your capacity to just get a get a gun and and walk out the store with it. And we don't know enough about this incident to make an informed determination about whether or not those laws were uh, enforced or the the triggers that were supposed to to be implemented were were uh, worked around, or the people in his life uh, helped him, or ignored the problems around it. We don't. We just don't have the sufficient speculation to talk about firearms in the way gun controllers want to. We can talk about a psychological profile because we have enough evidence of that, circumstantial, nevertheless, but enough evidence to have an informed discussion about that. We can't talk about guns in this case without just appealing to priors, which is not oh, an informed debate. It's a therapy session. But look, I mean, as we dig more and more into the shooter, we're 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 back to the the Parkland shooting, and the issue there is that this there there were there were indications throughout the Parkland shooter's high school career and life that he was heading for something really awful, and our civil liberties do not permit his you know prior incarceration. Then he was essentially being kept in check by his mother, and his mother died, and then he went. You know, and then that that was it. He went hog wild. And if we want to live in a society in which there is somehow, you know, which we determine that there that 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 uh, psychotics and schizophrenics who display violent tendencies can be held against their will uh, because they they are they pres- we can presume that they are a danger to themselves and others. That's a whole other set of conversations that we have to have that we're not having. That's why people go to the instrument, right? They go to the gun because you're going to say, really, you're going to take a free citizen and like say it's okay to lock him up when he hasn't done anything or when he's just said things or he's been on. And now now we're moving into this, by the way, with white supremacy, which is somebody's in a chat room somewhere. Are they then going to be arrested for sedition because they're in a chat room? Because that's where you start getting into the slippery slope of are you allowed to go places and listen to ideas that other people find injurious and stuff like that. But that, it's the same logic. Well, it's it's the irony, of course, is that in the bluest, deepest blue states and cities, I live in one of them, so I know, and I know this personally because it's going on in my neighborhood right now, it's extraordinarily difficult to commit someone who is who is either who is seriously mentally ill and can be a danger to himself or others. We have a guy who's been he has assaulted now 10 people on the street in broad daylight in front of my local grocery store. He's been arrested multiple times. Our, the criminal justice system in D.C. releases him within a few days. He's released. He's, you know, booked and released, booked and released. He keeps doing it. He's obviously ill. He needs to be. And nobody can figure out who's in charge of him or if they're. I mean, he's an adult male and he's going around just sucking punching he he stomped a grandma he sucker punched a teenager i mean he's a menace 
it used to be that we could take those people off the street, institutionalize them, get them on medication, do do whatever it takes. The state no longer wants to do that. That that has ceased to happen. So instead, he goes through a criminal justice process that doesn't help him with the underlying problem that he's facing, which is his mental illness, and just keeps cycling him through. It's it's not an effective way. And this is in a very deeply blue area. And I think you see that in a lot of these cities. There's a lot of homeless, mentally ill folks who some of whom are harmless, some of whom are quite dangerous. And there's no way for, for ordinary citizens to do anything about this except to protect themselves. This Look, is something that Charles Krauthammer used to talk about all the time and write about all the time, <clears throat> is our social reforms have eliminated our capacity to involuntarily commit people who are a danger to themselves and others. And when you have a mass shooting like the Naval Yard shooting in 2013, he wrote, um, it's the sort of thing that maybe could have been avoided if the people in his life had had the capacity to to check his ability to be a menace to society and right. himself. Right. But the reason that we don't, even though we haven't had a large scale debate on this or, you know, some kind of like it hasn't been a central issue in our politics or something like that. The reason that we don't is that the threat to everybody's civil liberties is considered too great that the risk of that is greater than the risk of letting people, you know, of having a more liberalized regime about mental health. And that this is then tragically injurious to people who could really use the help uh, is nonetheless, uh, you know, that's a, that's kind of like a social cost that we have decided to bear collectively because there hasn't been any kind of serious, fight on the Krauthammer, you know, in the Krauthammer model uh, to say, you know, it's okay for us to surrender a little bit of our civil liberties in order to help the mentally ill. Well, then it's like, why do we have to, we don't have to do that. Let's come up with a magical solution like banning guns, of which there are 400 million in the United States. Good luck with that. And by the way, what Christine, you said like, the you know, most gun owners are you know, are responsible with their guns. I mean, 30, I believe the number is 36% of American households have a gun in them. It's, it's some astonishing number. So it's not most, it's like 99%. It's yeah, the greatest danger not, with gun ownership is suicide. Someone using the weapon yeah. in their home to commit suicide. That's, and that's really by good. the way, that's by the way, an important point to make about gun violence, which is that when, we people say guns are so dangerous because look how many people are killed by guns. I believe most people who are killed by guns are suicides. I mean, I think that number is, is like two thirds or something like that. I mean, again, I'm not looking it up and if I got it wrong, I apologize, but, but um, so you can blame the gun for that. But of course a person who shoots himself with a gun could, if he doesn't have a gun can slit his wrist in a bathtub or take an overdose of pills or do something. There's, there's so much complicating data about guns and uh, rates of shooting that it that makes it hard to have um, an honest discussion um, that it, that isn't that that that's not a total mess you know I mean because there's 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 studies that suggest that rates of higher gun ownership conceal carry especially um, result in uh, less gun violence and uh, right. areas with less gun violence and so on. But look, the last uh, 25 years, maybe a little longer, um, have been an education in in the politics of guns. And and Democrats keep having to get schooled in the politics of guns 
because they are so they find alluring find this so alluring that um you know in 1996 Liddy Dole Elizabeth Dole uh wait maybe 2000 I'm trying to I'm, in 2000 Liddy Dole ran for president in the Republican Party on a gun control platform I mean that was the real test she was running at this idea that women hated guns and Republican women didn't like guns and she would run as a gun controller in the Republican Party that was that was only 2000 that was 20 years ago right so that issue the issue was unsettled and then election after election after election uh gun rights advocates had the upper hand and punished gun controller Democrats, particularly in the House, uh, in districts where, in rural and, you know, uh, ex-urban districts where people wanted to uh, maintain and, 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 and have their guns. And I suspect that we are now in for another period of this. And what is Joe Biden going to think? He is going to call for extensive gun controls, right? I, mean, and I was, to... let me just finish the Santa show. Sure. I, I was in a session with Joe Manchin in 2009, a lunch with Joe Manchin at Bloomberg in New York, in which he said, I spent all this time and all this energy and all this labor trying to come up with some kind of a deal on guns, uh, uh, you know, between Republicans and conservatives. I'm from a gun state. You know, if you remember, Joe Manchin shot a, a copy of the Obamacare bill with a rifle. Uh, for a for a for a television commercial, um, and he, I think it was twenty twelve. Maybe it was later. Anyway, he he basically said there there's no deal. We can't make a deal. There is no way to make a deal. We can't. We we there's no way to move left enough to satisfy my colleagues in the Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, any move to the right uh, tells more responsible gun rights groups. They're afraid to go with any changes because they will be outdistanced by more radical gun rights groups who will say, you see, the NRA, which, by the way, isn't the most radical of the gun rights groups, just to let you know where this was. The NRA is no longer trustworthy. It's become part of the Washington blob, and you better give us your money instead of them. So we're Joe Manchin isn't going to let... Joe Manchin's the whip hand in the Senate. Joe Manchin is not going to let Joe Biden have gun control. In December of 2012, the Newtown Massacre occurs. And the following four months were dedicated to a very public, single-issue debate over gun control and the passage of the Manchin-Toomey Amendments. That was and, it. That was what. That was actually. That was right. when. That was. I, I, I had this. Was at that lunch. It was and by morning. April of 2013, the effort failed, and as a result of Democratic defections, not just Republicans, um, and in that time, you know, you had polling that suggested that while people were nominally and fa- notionally in favor of this. It was not a priority. It wasn't anywhere near a priority. 4% of Gallup poll respondents said they prioritized new gun control laws at the time. And in 2014, a wave appeared out of nowhere. And nobody really knew why. They certainly didn't see it coming. And by by the, uh, January 2015, with the uh, new Congress, five of the Senate Democrats who voted in favor of Manchin-Toomey had been replaced with Republicans, NRA-endorsed Republicans. That of and course Democrats is, took a lesson from that. They took probably the the, the smart lesson from that, which they ni- 1994. 
right, a key element of the 1994 uh, Republican sweep was gun control. Clinton went for gun control. I mean, so uh, Democrats apparently have to learn this lesson over and over again politically. But, of course, it is also very alluring to their base. And there is probably close to 100% support for gun restriction or gun elimination or whatever in the in the mainstream media. So they have no they're getting no other message except from the grassroots. And if you uh, um I'm going to remind you of one thing and then we've got to do some some ad talk. But um uh Kristen Gillibrand became a member of the House of Representatives in 2016, 2006, excuse me, running as a pro-life pro-gun Democrat in upstate New York. Okay? Now she is like, you know, you should have an abortion when the child is three and all guns should be destroyed by a heat laser from outer space. Um, which gives you a sense of where that, where that, where the party, you know, has the Democratic Party has moved. It was thought then that it was really good to recruit pro-gun Democrats in the effort to get the House into Republican hands. That was Rahm Emanuel, right? He, he recruited gun, pro-gun people and veterans all over the country. They won 30-some-odd seats and took the House back in 2006 because the he understood that that issue was a third rail, and if they could eliminate it, then maybe people would vote for Democrats in the House. And now we're 15 years later, and we're about to go through this gavotte Again, it appears. Now, I want to talk to you about my our friend Dan Senor's podcast, Post-Corona. You've heard me talk about it. Very exciting podcast that tries to uh, imagine what life is going to be like in the United States once we are through this period and behind us. And one of the best episodes he's ever done is up right now. It's with uh, an educational consultant and investor named Daniel Pianco. Um, and they talk about what higher education is like and is going to be like in the wake of Corona. And every minute of this podcast, I swear to you, every minute features a kind of eye-opening little factoid for you. Uh, uh, Pianco uh, goes into explaining how, uh, in the you know, a- as Corona started and. Uh, Kids were uh, informed by their schools that uh, college was going to be remote and they would therefore get a 10% break on college, but they could do it remotely and they would get a little bit of a break on tuition, uh, but uh, whatever. And the kids, you know, tens of thousands of them, if not more, and the lawsuits are already coming, said, no, I don't want that. I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm not going to college for the reasons you think I'm going to college. I'm not going to college to sit in a classroom or in a virtual classroom. I'm going for the lazy river around my dorm at the University of Alabama. I'm going to go to football games. I'm not here for the fantasy reasons that you and America think are so important for why everybody has to get a high, you know, has to go through higher education and get a degree. And uh, this is a really sort of eye-opening moment and raises questions about going forward what exactly is it that you know that um, that encourages people to spend this time and the kind of money that they have to spend uh, on higher education when in fact the it, the universities themselves have failed and they have recruited people to be their students who actually don't particularly want to be students 
And what is it like for people who do want to be students? And what kind of high ticket high ticket dollars are they paying for this? And how are the, how is this going to work when all is said and done? So that's Dan Senor's post-corona with Daniel Pianco. Fantastic episode. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts. Download it and listen, and you will be enlightened, amused, horrified, and weep bitter tears if, like me, you have a child who is relatively soon going to go off to college. Okay, so that was question one, right, was gun control. Let's move on to question two, which I think will, uh, I'm now not going to give you the the buzzer. So let's say question two is some question about COVID. Will the media, now I'm going to give you the buzzer, because if you get it wrong, I'm going to buzz you. Will the media ask the question as follows? In the New York Times on Wednesday, David uh, Leonhardt uh, published uh, a uh, an article about a study by the National Bureau of Economic Research about uh, the media's coverage of corona, in which he revealed that the coverage of corona in the United States has been overwhelmingly more negative. In other words, the stories have taken an overwhelmingly more negative tone you know, is registered by certain uses of certain words and that than uh, than articles in other countries uh, around the world, and that um, uh, the overwhelmingly negative characterization of the story certainly had an effect on the public discourse about Corona and the public handling of Corona and the attitudes of the public in the United States about Corona, uh, and that uh, we therefore see how uh, the press gathered together in a kind of American omni-mind, single mind to say that this was the worst thing that had ever happened. And basically to say that uh, anything that happened that did not fit with the lockdown narrative, let's say, uh, was bad. And so the overwhelming coverage was, of course, there are people on a beach, that's bad. There are people in a park, that's bad. You know, there are people, uh, schools should remain closed, you know, however you want to slice it. Uh, and so, what, Mr. President, what do you make of the fact that the coverage has been so uniformly negative? Do you think that that had a, a, a deleterious effect on the United States? Uh, who thinks that that question will be will be asked at the press conference? No. Okay, we got we got three heads shaking. No. So you're, the answer you're correct. That question will not be asked. That was a little leading I at the press conference. So, uh, leading what, the witness. <laughs> what question about Corona? Do you guys hang on, hang on, hang on. You can't, okay. can't gloss over that that Leonhard piece. Who's because glossing it was, over it? It's extremely annoying, and here's why. That study is very valuable. It confirms all of our anecdotal evidence, all of our observations. And he, he uh, touches on a thesis and then backs off of it because it's a terrifying idea. What he describes as being the problem here is not a supply issue. It's not the press is so morose and myopically focused on negative stories because they're they're morose and negative people. It's because that's what the audience wants. It's what the audience demands. The audience for news consumption is morose and terrified of the world outside and only wants to hear about bad news. And the press is giving it to them. But the audience for news consumption is shrinking rapidly. It is a self-selected audience that is narrowing 
by the day dramatically. And we are increasingly being subjected to news coverage that is fan service, that is, is catering to this audience that is not representative of the public and is desperate to hear confirmation that their pessimism about their conditions and the world outside is valid. Okay, but, you know, to be fair to Leonhardt, he actually says in his experience in newsrooms, reporters and editors don't think, oh, my God, I got to write about this because, you know, uh, people, this is the only thing people want to consume. So that's where unconscious bias and bias comes in. And where he doesn't go, which is where I thought you were going to go, but where he should have gone is, why was the coverage so uniformly negative? And there is one word or name, right, with five letters that explains why the coverage was uniformly negative, and that is Trump. Do you think... But that doesn't, that's not satisfying because it's persisted even long after the Trump administration has been... Well, but that's because I think now the shift has, weirdly, the incentive, the the result is the same. The incentives have shifted. You've got cover, the, the effort to cover for the Biden administration's, you know, weird, as we've, the under promise over deliver standard for vaccination and reopening the, the absolutely craven beholden status they have with the, with the teachers unions. I mean, these are all, the press has now continued the negative drumbeat in part because that now protects Biden and some of the things that are obvious. Here's the question I want him to answer about COVID. Why aren't schools reopen? Why doesn't everyone have a shot in their arm? Like those are the only questions that matter right now for, for this country. Okay. Why well, it is possible that the question will be asked about why schools aren't reopening. And there was an amazing thing that happened today or yesterday. <laughs> Randy Weingarten, the head <laughs> of the of the American Federation of Teachers, said we don't believe the CDC in 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 three feet. We don't believe that three feet is effective. Yeah, she's okay. a flat earther. She's become a flat earther. Yeah. So basically, it's okay now to say that you don't believe the science. Well, right. that's great. So let's talk about many people who don't believe the science. There are a lot of people who seem to think that you know the vaccine is going to make them sick. So are they right too? Randy, that's where she's going to go. She's going to go to my members are very concerned about the virus, about the vaccine. And, you know, I can't tell them that they should take it because, you know, they might get AstraZeneca. And have you seen the headlines about AstraZeneca? Maybe, but if you you haven't figured out that she's an opportunistic liar at this point, you're kind of a dope but it's and not, she, it's she, not that February you 14, to... she came out and said the cdc is you know is our guiding light and these recommendations will get schools open appropriately and safely and we're going to defer to the cdc and she changed her tune and the cdc changed his tune because she wants to keep schools closed in perpetuity right but i mean it's not that she's a dope or not a dope it is that the rubber is meeting the road and the interesting thing is that the educational establishment in the united states or the people who are paid by the public to educate people in the United States are are clinging to desperate measures. Worse, worse. So that they can get paid and not go to work. There's something worse going on. There's something much more pernicious and it's downright Orwellian in the school districts that remain closed. And I will try not to sound like a banshee while I describe this, but obviously I have personal experience with this, but a lot of parents nationwide are having this experience where their schools are called quote unquote open 
But all that's happening is kids are dragging their laptop computers into a room where they're being monitored by not a teacher, but some sort of proctor that's been hired at the minimum wage to watch them. And that school is being declared open. That's my son's high school, which is like, oh, come have some in-person learning. Bring your laptop and your teacher will be zooming in. This is not learning, but they are, they, they are, you're right that the rubbers hit the road. They can no longer have this conceit with parents that this is appropriate because the science shows clearly and has shown clearly for some time that it's not, you know, the president claimed he wanted schools to be open. They're, they're done. Like the emperor has no clothes. You have to, you have to say something that's true. And parents are filing lawsuits and legislatures are passing laws that say we won't fund you unless you open in person. It's already happening. The the, the boulders rolling down the hill. I'm just going to be throwing metaphors out there, but it's, that's why she's, She's saying, like Noah said, she's completely contradicting herself from a few months ago. I noticed an interesting use of a familiar uh, trope, a racial trope, uh, today or yesterday in the New York Times in relation to this, which is that in talking about school closings, there was a thing, a, a sentence in an article or something that said, there are horrible racial disparities in school, in, you know, in, in American public schooling. Where schools are open, overwhelmingly, they are open in places where white people live. And where they are closed or where you can't get into them are places where minorities, in particular African-Americans and Hispanics, live. Uh, so that, that this is being phrased in a way to suggest that, that African-Americans and Hispanics in particular are being discriminated against in school openings as opposed to school closings. And I, I believe that is effectively true, but who is responsible for that? These are urban, these are cities where uh, being run by urban politicians who are in the thrall of the teachers' unions and are doing their bidding. And this is not white people in, you know, white supremacists in Utah who are saying, hey, my school is open and you are going to be living as, you know, ignorant savages. Th that's not what's going on. The people in Utah think all the schools should be open everywhere. It is minority cities that are, uh, you know, ensuring the educational gap between whites and blacks with black mayors and black, you know, majority black school districts deciding that they're not going to educate kids. Well, the teacher, it's worse because the teachers unions are actually using race as a justification for not reopening. Because what they say is all these parents, these, these minority parents are fearful of sending their kids back to school. But if you actually start looking at the kinds of survey data that they're sending out to parents, they don't allow for in-person return to school, even as an option for parents to select. So they're, they're lying. They don't actually know how all these parents feel. And, uh, and what we have seen are some preliminary studies that show when you open schools and, p and parents see that kids are going back and there isn't a massive COVID outbreak and massive deaths, which were promised by the media and teachers unions, then even in minority communities, they start to become more optimistic and positive about sending their kids back. So even if they are hesitant, the actual act of opening the school is the thing that answers that hesitancy. Show that it's safe. Send your kid to school. They're okay. At, you know, Get teachers to the front of the line for vaccination. Absolutely prioritize that. But that's not what these groups are doing. They're actually using race as a proxy for not returning to their jobs in the classroom. Right. Guys, I want to uh, introduce a new 
sponsor to the Commentary Magazine podcast, Fast Growing Trees. So look, uh, I I, got to read this because I live in an apartment and I don't have a backyard to put in a fast growing tree. So let me just read this to you, tell you what they tell me that I got to tell you because I can't really personalize it very much. You probably upgraded a few things around the house after being stuck inside. It makes sense. So now is the time to turn your yard into a paradise with fastgrowingtrees.com. Skip the big box stores and head to fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, plants, expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth come spring. There's a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home and yard, fastgrowingtrees.com. Now through June 30th, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. With that 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, it means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. All right. um, So we've got through the COVID question and the guns question. Uh, What what other questions do we anticipate? There's a question that will be coming that I don't think is going to be favorable to the Biden administration. It might be framed in a a sympathetic way, but it is going to be on the border. Um, The border crisis has become something that the press is, to their credit, focusing extensively on and pressing this administration on and trying to get members of the administration to the border and to open up these facilities. And uh, that question is going to be coming. I don't know how aggressive it's going to be. I wouldn't bet it will be too aggressive, but it's coming. Okay. So let's try to figure out then how they'll do it to make it as painless for Biden (laughs) as possible, since I don't think there's any way to do it in a way that will not put him on the defensive. Well, they'll call it an inherited crisis, right? This this problem that you inherited from the Trump administration. Okay, that's the fair. most important first framing. Okay, um, that is good. Okay. Uh, I mean, how about something like, uh, Mr. President, we know you care about children deeply. Uh, and uh, and there, uh, there are children uh, at the border in, uh, in, in conditions. Uh, and we understand why you don't want to let us see the children at the border because they have, you know, privacy concerns and, you know, they're, they're, it's really not our business. But uh, so we understand that they're in conditions that really aren't, aren't so great. Um, what, what can you do to alleviate their, their suffering? Something like that. Uh, yeah. Or, or would it be more like, uh, uh, Mr. President, uh, uh, are you going to change the policies that you, uh, laid out, uh, ending certain, sorts of uh, policies established by the Trump administration that seem to have had the consequence of leading to a greater surge in in, in unaccompanied children, uh, unaccompanied minors coming across the border. Well, that'll be his, well, that'll be his that answer, uh, regardless of what the question is. The answer will be based in <clears throat> what he was bequeathed um, and, and how to move away from that. Um, so, so just to, to lay the whole thing squarely at Trump's feet. <clears throat> All right, so uh, so we got the border. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, I, I think there the will filibuster. Be... You're, 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 the filibuster is coming. I think it, Abe and I think it's first question. I'm willing to put money on the table. 
You are? In that one. Yeah. I no, can't I take your money from you, Noah. I'm sorry. The well, guns is the first enough. question. I, 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 mean, I can be okay. convinced. You're, you're, not, you're not above harming me, John. You invited me to Clubhouse. That, <laughs> I, okay. that, is, that is a crime. Oh, my God. I thought it was a phishing scam. I no. didn't click on that one. <laughs> no, no, no. Somebody invited me to Clubhouse, and I said, and Abe's already on Clubhouse, it turns out. So I sent my two invitations to Christine and Noah, and uh, I, I have no intention of going on, but I, but I, I thought I you were now invited. I have no choice. I have yeah, to, I that's have to right. accept your invitation. I'm not rude. I just thought you, were, rude. I thought you had been hacked, so I ignored no, it. No, <laughs> I know. It looked like a hack. I should have, re, I should have re, uh, reframed it. Anyway, um, uh, and uh, speaking of, 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 uh, of Clubhouse and, and, uh, and reframing, um, Clubhouse is, of course, a talking twitter i believe uh it's a place where people go to sort of have or it's like a party line something like that it's all verbal and of course therefore it reminds me a little bit of the passover seder and we are just days away from the passover seder and of course we are this is my penultimate reminder to you that you have just a little bit of time to go get mark gerson's the telling how judaism's essential book reveals the meaning of life I've been telling you about it all month. Study of the Passover Haggadah, the manual guide, guidebook, and uh, exposition of the Passover Seder, the the uh, the two night uh, meal uh, celebrated in two successive nights, in which uh, we essentially discuss and enact and reenact and symbolically enact the Exodus from Egypt. Um, uh, hard sell. Go get it. Look at it. Find things in it. You can talk about it. Your Seder, so your Seder's not boring. Face it, your Seder's boring. You've been doing the same Seder every year. Your kids, their eyes roll. Uh, people want to get up and leave the table. They're, they want to go in the kitchen because it's so boring. Stop your boring Seder. Get some new fresh material. Get Mark Gerson's The Telling. Find something new to say. Find something new to talk about in each of the 15 sections of the Seder and make your make this uh, a, a pleasurable, wonderful experience and make your kids enjoy it rather than go, oh God, not another Seder. Mark Gerson's the telling available wherever books are sold and download to your device or whatever. Uh okay, so uh so we got uh, we got those questions and uh Asian American violence. So uh, there will be something about Asian American violence in particular since there was this bizarre thing that has now since been retracted that Senator Tammy Duckworth said uh, about how she was going to filibuster all Biden nominees unless they were Asians. Well, her and or LGBTQ Maisie, her and Maisie Hirono said that they would filibuster, they would not vote for any new nominees unless they were Asian American Pacific Islander, and she would vote for white people as long as they were LGBTQ. Right now, apparently, was, has been this has been retracted, or right, somebody discovered that this was nakedly discriminatory and racist. No, you think, <laughs> and, and that was probably uh, in an in an in inappropriate thing to say in the moment. So I don't know who got to them, but. Uh, gives you some idea of where their heads are at. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say the retraction is just the window dressing. I mean, it is, she, she said out loud the thing you're not, that you're supposed to couch in euphemisms about diversity. She just flat out said, I'm going to hold this, you know, here's the carrot, here's the stick, give me what I want. It's blackmail, actually, is what it is. Um, and everybody who read that statement went, 
isn't that blackmail? <laughs> isn't that not the role of someone who's an elected official? So that that part of it was just saying out loud what we've all seen. And the interesting little, there were two interesting little subnotes to that story, one of which was that they evidently Biden administration's response to her demand was, but we gave you Kamala. There's Kamala, which is Kamala is trotted out whenever, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus or any Asian American, you know, elected official complains about diversity. They're like, but Kamala, Kamala. Well, she's obviously not cutting it for them. In fact, uh, Duckworth claimed she was insulted that that was the response. So that whole exchange was interesting because the the I'm going to choose a black woman for vice president thing has not had very long legs for this administration. No, no. That's what, what he meant when he, when they say Kamala is she's South Asian. That's what they meant. Right. But she's, she's whatever. So she's supposed to count for everything. Right. Exactly. She's, so a, it's she's like, offended by the notion of, you know, by being appeased with tokenism. While, while, demanding, demanding, tokens. Demand, while demanding tokenism. Right. right. But I think something interesting is going on here, which is I think Democrats are worried that the politics of that the uh, the rising self consciousness of Asian Americans, and in this case, I'm now going to specify what I'm talking about because it has become very easy to use the term Asian Americans to refer to. Everybody who seems to have comes from south of the former Soviet Union and east of Iran uh, counts and constitutes an Asian American. What we are talking about here in this specific circumstance is if you want to count Indian Americans, Pakistani Americans, and Sri Lankan Americans as Asians, you go right ahead. That's not the issue here. The issue here is bias against Chinese uh, people of Chinese descent. That is the issue. That's who got shot up in Atlanta. That is who's getting sucker punched on the streets of America. That is what's going on. Well, on Korean or Vietnamese. I mean, yeah. Right. yeah. Non-South yeah. Asian. Right. But I mean, yeah. So Koreans and Chinese, let's say. I, I mean, again, like, so vi- visually Asian in that category of Asian. Okay. So, and, uh, those are the people who are being discriminated against on college campuses and by uh, admissions departments. Those are people who are getting sucker punched. Those are people who are, who are, yeah, who have been um, victims of this uh, crime wave. And, uh, and so what's funny is that you're now seeing how these categorizations, including things like people of color exist to excuse people who buy into this tokenist system by by giving them false numbers, right? People of color. We have so many people of color. What does somebody who's from Colombo, Sri Lanka, have in common with somebody who is from Nigeria? Nothing whatsoever. They're so, both on Clubhouse. <laughs> fair enough. That is an excellent point. They are both on Clubhouse. Um, so, uh, you know, we the, the rubbers being there. The point, the thing I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make here is that the political consciousness that faces these people is not going to be resolved by uh, getting two cabinet secretaries and saying, oh, look, we have cabinet secretaries. Because, you know, Trump had Elaine Chow, uh, whatever. It is that the issues, the very real issues that have to be dealt with in their cases uh, are, are need to be dealt with in their cases just because they have you know far left wingers in the in their coalitions 
who claim who who have you know tried to claim leadership positions because they represent Asian American activist groups doesn't mean that that's where the that's where the community of Asian Americans or these communities are going to go when they decide they need to enter politics and and flex their muscles to get things that they need in a system that is failing them because what they need is they need people to stop making it impossible for their kids to get the education that their kids deserve that's what they need um is what I think. Anyway, uh, let me just uh, uh, finish up here by talking to you, of course, about our friends at the Bonson Group, that that uh, bi-coastal financial management and services firm, uh, $2.5 billion under management, uh, featuring David Bonson and uh, 27 uh, professional financial managers and, and advisors, including former Council of Economic Advisors Chairman Larry Kudlow, you get those two great products, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com to give you a sense of how macroeconomics and American social trends and policies and the behavior of the Fed and the behavior of the Biden administration, the behavior of Congress are going to have an effect on how you should look at your financial future, the management of your money, the management of your portfolio, the management of your assets. So please, Bonson Group, dividendcafe.com, the dctoday.com for your antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. So we 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 gotta we gotta go. Noah is going on vacation for a week. He's waving. He's waving to you. You can't see that because we're you we're on radio essentially. It's like this the great joke, which was that one of the biggest stars in radio was of course Edgar Bergen, the ventriloquist, and his dummy Charlie McCarthy on the radio. What I, I never this never made sense to me. A ventriloquist on the radio. So when he was doing it in the studio, did he move his lips? Uh, did, did he bother to like fake not moving his lips? Or Only did the he dummy knows. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I don't know. Anyway, so Noah was waving. Uh, so I'm just, so I'm, I'm just telling you that. Um, was I? <laughs> yeah, you don't really know. I just made up that he was waving. Exactly. Anyway, uh, so the three of us will be here, and maybe we'll have some guests. And uh, we are, we are, uh, we need to make some certain technological advances because we have relied on Noah to produce the podcast. And as he is going, uh, we are going to have to labor to do this uh, on our own. And uh, I have all the faith in the world in my temporary replacements. Don't get any ideas. Coming back. I'm getting that bedazzled jacket. I mean it. It's producer. Producer. <laughs> There's no podcast Friday. It's entirely my fault. That's just, we should put that out there. Okay. And mine. So, anyway. And Abe's. We've already established that Abe is, Abe is at fault <laughs> for everything. Yeah. So, that's, you know, basically. You know, the, you know, COVID, Abe, Abe did it. Sorry. Just to let you know. Anyway, yeah. You'll... You, it's okay. It's okay. We've, we've forgiven you long since. Uh, so, uh, as I say, we'll be back on Friday for Abe, uh, Noah, and Christine. Uh, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>